0: Well, we've uh, gone through six of the steps and we're now on the seventh. This is a very interesting one for me because for the longest time I said, uh, why are there eight steps to this Eightfold Path? Why not just one step, the meditation, and just clear out the rest? I mean, let me just get to the heart of this thing. And uh, We, um, especially in the West, I think, uh, we don't have a clear cultural way uh, to think about life um, uh, outside of uh, our usual... We don't have a spiritual frame of reference for most things in this culture. Uh, It hasn't somehow engendered itself or ingrained itself into the very uh, way that we work and live. But in other cultures, it's more fundamental to the way uh, they live. Uh, For instance, in some of the Buddhist countries, like Thailand, uh, at the basis of their culture, of their socialization, of the way they teach their children, is generosity. And uh, also a sila, uh, morality. And with that basis of sila and generosity, Uh, the meditation uh, is supported by the way they live. And uh, in this culture uh, we really uh, often think and I'm certainly speaking uh, personally as well as generally, uh, we often think in terms of how to get it and get on with it. Uh, And we're not really we're interested in the speed of our progress not really allowing it to unfold and move in our very veins and cells. And yet the Eightfold Path is cellular. It has nothing to do with speed or quickness. And it's framed that way. Action. I was uh, over in Vancouver uh, this last weekend, yesterday, and Saturday and Sunday, uh, teaching up there. And someone said uh, to me that they kept having a reoccurrent insight every retreat they set, and yet they found no change. The next time they came back and had that insight, they look at their life and they saw over a number of years that there hadn't been any change. As if there was going to be some magical force that allowed that change to occur. And I said, well, um, you know, unless you move it, what you see into the very actions of what you do into the very cells because that becomes cellular. Um, Insight can be very uh, cognitive and we can keep it in a kind of an intellectual realm. But unless we move it into action, which is the cells learning the insight, you see, through speech, through action, through livelihood, the integration can remain very external in some way. And so what I do now with people who on retreat have insight is I say think of four or five ways that you can use that insight to um, commit yourself to an action that would allow you to be in the direction of what you've seen. For instance, um, just along the course of that, uh, there's a uh, site on the internet called uh, The Hunger Site. It's all one word, TheHungerSite.com. So now, uh, when I turn on my computer and I get on the Internet, uh, as a way to establish some reference or direction for how I use the Internet, I immediately go to The Hunger Site. And what you can do is you push a button. It just takes a... depending upon what, how you're connected to the Internet, it takes me about a minute. <laughs> it could take some of you about a second, but you push this button and it, it, um, and then the sponsors who are sponsoring this site give anywhere from two to three cups of food uh, to those people in need just for pushing a button. You don't, There's no recording, you don't have to sign your name, nothing like that. And it shows a little map and it says every 3.7 seconds someone dies of hunger in the world and it says 50% of those are children. Now how can you not go to that site? How can you not go to that site? If you can offer three cups of rice to someone who is starving merely by taking 15 seconds out of your day, how can we not go to that site? That's what I mean by the integration. Putting our actions into the commitment of view. It's not good enough to have the view and to sit there and intellectualize about it. We have to have integrated that. And the whole process of the Eightfold Path is that twined rope of integration. All aspects All seven steps, all seven steps, step two through step eight, are servants of step one. All of the other steps feed and cultivate and nourish right view. It's like a queen ant. For it is an understanding and in view where freedom lies. And so often we get caught up in just kind of a intellectualizing of that particular way of seeing. And we don't really put our actions, our livelihood, the basis of the way we live, in alignment with that intellectualization. And it remains very distant. And then we wonder why we don't feel like we're changing. We won't allow ourselves to change. We won't give permission for the body, the cells of our body, to evolve in any critical way. So in the East, they have a whole cultural context for how meditation springs forth from generosity. I was just to give you an example. I was at a um, monastery in Thailand, and uh, there is a Thai sweet that takes a considerable amount of labor uh, on the part of the villagers to produce. They have to boil coconut milk for I don't know all night. They stay up stirring this coconut milk, and then they make these little and they boil it way way down. It's like maple syrup sort of, but very uh, like taffy like. And they boil it, you know. These Huge quantity of milk down, and they process and do all lots of things with it. And so they're up all night doing this, and uh, all the monks uh, really delight in that sweet. So we're all like, <laughs> <laughs> we're very aware the fires are going. Well, and so we we're all expecting this sort of feast uh, of this particular Thai sweet. And uh, so there was a great anticipation, and it's only done one time uh, in the course of the year because of the ripeness of the coconuts or something. I don't really know that. Uh, but any case, uh, so we were all in anticipation of having this sweet given to us uh, when uh, unbeknownst to uh, us, uh, several busloads of tourists come to this monastery. And uh, they all pile out. I mean, <laughs> There must have been a hundred or more, and the Thais think nothing about it, absolutely nothing. They say, "Oh, would you like some sweet?" Giving away <laughs> our breakfast? <laughs> no. But then, but but for me as a Westerner, I have to very be very honest about my feelings. I said, "Why are they doing that? Why aren't they serving the mugs?" That's what, and and the monks literally you know got a much smaller portion than we would have, but you can see i just i mean the um, I just saw my cultural response, I saw the western cultural response to an eastern cultural response, and i wasn 't very proud of that. <coughs> You see, when you're born uh, into a culture which really emphasizes that, then you already have one foot into right view. You're, always, you're already leaning in that direction. You already have a, a sense that life, in terms of generosity and in terms of ethical conduct, has a way of, uh, of consideration and basic concern for, the, for, for others. And it's not that this culture is devoid of that. It just isn't um, embraced in the same way. It's uh, individualism is embraced in this culture, and that's a very different statement of view. Um, so it, it's just so when I came to the meditation uh, 25 years ago, I really wasn't interested in anything. I really thought I was stopping at a McDonald's meditation center and picking up my. Uh, my hamburger of meditation and so I could leave real quick. And all I had to do was do the seventh step and that the job would be done. And so there is a whole way of context of using this going into myself as the end-all and be-all of the integration or of the enlightened state that would come out. And really, the next 25 years has been um, rediscovering the ancient path that has always been there, rather than the Western approach to it. Many Westerners still approach meditation as that way of doing it, getting it, getting it. And that that's that's what is important. And when they're not on meditation retreats or sitting, then it's kind of life is however I want to live it. But to really think, so you think, okay, now why would the Buddha stick meditation on the seventh step? Shouldn't it be right under view? I mean, it's got some importance. It's, I think it's because he wanted to emphasize this very thing. He wanted to emphasize this very thing. It's not that meditation doesn't have an important component to say about view. It's just that if you do view before you do aspiration and effort and action and speech and you get a whole sense of how to live, then meditation is really counter to the very way we live. But if it's in alignment with the way we live, then it's Um, it becomes uh, in in that alignment it becomes reinforced many times over. It's not about moving off somewhere into some silent repose. It's about everything. Everything. Everything that happens to us. That's such an important understanding to come to. But it does have an awful lot to say about how to hold and maintain the view. It's a way to reinforce or re-encourage that view over and over again. Now, I would like to talk about two types of mindfulness because... This seventh step is on right mindfulness. And I'd like to talk, just talk about two types. One type which is in service of the view and one type where most of us begin which is counter to the view. And I call the second type uh, mechanical mindfulness. That's the mindfulness that you hear at the end of a retreat that says, okay, now go out in your life and be mindful. And so we pick that up as a particular task that okay, I've gotta be mindful. That's what I've gotta do. We pick it up as a task, as something that we add to our lives, like a burden. I mean it's a burden. It's something you have to think now remember to do it, right? And so, you know, you you re- rushing somewhere and you, okay, be mindful, reaching, reaching, touching, 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 writing, writing, writing. And it's, there's a kind of, um, or at least for me, and I speak personally again, there's a kind of a rub there, you know, because really what you want to do is just do it. You don't want to be mindful of it, most Is Isn't that right? Am I too far off base with the rest of you? And you see Mindfulness in that point is something that it's an effortful thing that we're adding to our lives. It's not flowing from our lives. It's something that we're adding to. It's a it's it's a task. Because mindfulness comes from right view. As I will it's a it's an attempt to bring us into the process of life, rather than the gain and product of life, and anything that brings us into the process of life is in aligned with right view. But if our life, in its direction and force, is about gaining and acquiring and having and wanting, then when we apply mindfulness, it feels like there's a rub. It feels like it's there's a friction there because the views are in opposition to one another. Right? For instance, we sit. Sitting, 45 minutes, bell rings, I can get up. I find myself going straight to the refrigerator. (laughs) Why do I find myself going to the refrigerator? Because eating, consuming, puts me back into the view I'm most familiar with. Or some kind of enjoyment. I want to turn on the radio, get it back going again, you see. Stir it up again so I can feel like I'm really who I am from my old view. And so I would, I want to be comfortable within my old view and I'll use meditation to, I mean, and we can go through decades of meditation just colliding with ourselves. unless we establish the view, unless meditation is in service to our actions, in service to our speech. Now, if we're in service to the process of life, then you can see that meditation can be very relaxed and natural. It doesn't have to be imposed, does it? And this is the second type of mindfulness. This is mindfulness that comes from an inherent interest in life, an inherent value of life, or an alignment with life, in which life is being used um, used to self-discover. Now, let me give you an example of that, because uh, that's hard one to understand. Um, when I left being a monk, uh, I felt the need for that integration. I don't know where that need came from, or where the insight came from, but I felt like I could sit being a monk for the rest of my life, but unless I involved the, the other aspects of my character totally within this thing, I would, I, would be, uh, less than, um, I would do less than what my heart was calling for me to do. So um, I felt like I was really going into something and that somehow that while I was a monk, it was like being in a peanut, a peanut being in a peanut shell and I was encased in kind of a a protective layer that wouldn't allow me to touch life completely because I would, for fear, I would get lost in it. And I suddenly wanted to peel away the shell and say, to hell with it. If I get lost in it, I get lost in it. But for God's sake, let it all come at me so I can get a feeling for this thing. So it was a genuine call. But all the other monks who thought I was disrobing or knew I was disrobing said, Oh, you're really... Uh, giving in to samsara, as they would say. You're giving in to your ignorance. And I thought, no, I'm going into what I want to do. I'm going into my heart. Because that's what interested me. It interested me uh, to find out what parts of myself still needed uh, integration. And so uh, how I left the monkhood was actually fostered a sense of alignment with what, uh, my interest to life. I'm not saying that being a monk can't foster that interest for life. For some people it does, and for some people it does for the rest of their life. But for me, there is an evolution in which that part of my practice ended and a new practice began. And when that began, if I had stayed as a monk, it would have been adharmic, against the view of what I understood. And what we're each called upon is to act within our own dharma, Within our own alignment, and 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 I started working with a dying. And in any case, I began to look at life as a way to further understand myself. And I used the obstructions of life not towards the normal way of aversion and attachment, but rather to sort of learn and to understand and to move and to use those uh, obstacles for further self. Evolution, and therefore the view wasn't aligned with my actions and with my meditation. Now, while I was a monk, and, and uh, my teacher Ajahn Dasa, I would go to, and I was working hard. I was sitting, walking, you know, doing my practice, and he wasn't. And uh, he said, "Well, just practice natural mindfulness," he would say. Natural mindfulness. Why are you putting forth all that effort? Just practice natural mindfulness. I, I never understood that but what I have since understood is that when you're when we are in a line with the view of life as being one of healing and connecting in order to heal and connect we have to also be aware of what obstructs that healing and connecting within ourselves and as we're working on that our heart delights at the prospect of further alignment it's a it's really a self-motivating activity. And then the whole thing just leads to greater and greater alignment. So that view and meditation spring forth from the same sp- spring, from the same water source. So when, when we're interested, uh, isn't our attention all already there? We wouldn't, to say we're interested and to say we're inattentive are oxymorons. To say that life is feeding us and to say that we are aware and mindful is one and the same thing. And that's why wise livelihood has to in some way invoke our interests as to our actions towards greater healing. Because all of this is a way for further self-understanding, further accessing the barricades of the hearts, the limitation of the heart, and to come more and more and to align our life, more and more into that view and stream. And to think about life as being about the forms that we do is to lose ourselves completely. In trivia, trivial pursuit (laughs) has nothing. I often I was um, with a Zen master and his students uh, a few years ago, and they had asked me to come and talk to them about death and dying or something. And the Zen, this in particular, Zen master is very uh, Zen. (laughs) Very formal and kind of fierce. And what I noticed was that all his students were just like this. And I was just sitting there going, whoa. (laughs) Uh, And there was a kind of rigidity of style, and and I don't want to whitewashed the situation but probably most of those students were just kind of mimicking their teacher and somehow feeling as if that mimic mimicry whatever the word is was serving their spiritual lives And I just saw it as like baggage, just another layer of baggage towards wrong view. They would have perhaps been better off just throwing those robes aside and sitting down there and asking real human questions. And so I think the salvation towards right view is humanness. Just being human not the pretentious layers that we all accumulate and what we think it means to be spiritual. And you know what will make you more human than anything else? I have found. Perhaps you have discovered some other way to do it. I have found death. Because death allows no superfluousness, nothing extra. You reflect on your death and you're cut to the bone. So you be a prince or a pauper and death is the equalizer. You carry your pomp and your arrogance into death. Yeah. See? Right to the bone. I like things that go to the bone. It shows everything that we've added to the bone. It shows all the fat all the useless stuff, doesn't it? I want to go to the bone. I don't want layers of pretension. I want to go right to the bone. Let's see what this thing is about. This can be a steep climb or a fearful one, but to me that's what the bone's about. Let's just see this thing. Let's just see it face on. So let me just read you a story of five short chapters, an autobiography in five short chapters. And it has to do with uh, the learning how to align ourselves with the view and with meditation. Chapter 1. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter 2 I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it. I see it there. I still fall fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Is this beginning to sound like our practice? Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) We need often to go through every chapter, every one of those chapters. And many people who are caught in chapter two know they're in chapter two, know there's a hole there, and dive right in it. The value of mindfulness is that it begins to show us the pain that we cause ourselves. It's now my fault. It's not your fault. The damn hole is there. And up until chapter 3 or 4, I'm blaming it on you. First of all, mindfulness begins to own our experience as our own. It begins to allow that experience to be seen as internal to me and that the problems that I generate are problems that I generate and that they can't be blamed or pointed to other parties, I have to take responsibility for the arising of those problems in myself. I have to take responsibility for the anger arising. It may often arise when you're around, but it arises in me. It doesn't arise in you. And I have to take responsibility for it arising in me. And I lose myself in the blame of that anger by throwing things at you. And finally, we see the trap coming and we walk around the trap. And then, I'm not going to get involved in that anymore. At the beginning of it, the inclination, the intention, the aspiration, the view is so strong within us I just don't. I'm just not going to get into that. You feel it coming. You just that's it. But we have to go through. For most of us, we have to go through five chapters of our life before we get to that point. For what mindfulness does, in its heart of hearts, when it's aligned with right view, is that it teaches us a kind of receptive posture to life, a way to let life in that we have hitherto kept life out, kept life distant, kept life at, life at bay. And the receptivity quality of mindfulness is a, is a willingness to allow ourselves to be touched, perhaps for the first time. And the way we've been keeping life at bay is that we've been thinking about it. And that way, we can keep life out And we can keep ourselves enclosed in the peanut shell of our own concepts and never really be touched by the pain of what we are doing to ourselves. And when I drop the pretension of my concepts, I am left with the rawness of the experience. And therefore I cannot point my finger and blame any longer that experience on anyone but myself. And at that point, receiving life becomes the only way that we can live. The receptive quality, the listening quality of life. And what we're called to do through our mindfulness is to increase the acuity of our listening. Rather than the habit of our influence. Rather than exerting our control. And so the posture of mindfulness, when established within right view, is one in which life more and more comes in. And we, less and less, try to keep it out. And you can define freedom as the non-resistance to life. So that eventually, any distinction or boundary, any separation whatsoever, has ended. Now how many of us use our mindfulness to inform us in that way? Because what, where the message stops, where the message will no longer be received, where it's kept out, is at the base of our fear of self-protection. That's where the boundary is. That is the boundary. That's the established boundary between me and other. And so unless we're constantly working on the very fear we have of life over and over again, endless, continuous, we have arrested our mindfulness and established wrong view. See, it's an all or none affair. It's not a little bit. 45 minutes a day and then the rest of my life This is total This is 100% And so we become very sensitive to the areas of our fear because those show the rub of life Ah, said Hamlet, there's the rub And yet, can it be done as a layperson? You bet it can. In fact, in letting all of life in, you're letting all the rubs in. Protecting ourselves from nothing means that you have access in an instant to perfect freedom. (coughs) Hide behind the walls of your clarity, of your mindfulness, of your retreating mentality. Some people retreat in order so that their mind will become so they don't have to have hindrances anymore. There's the rub. On this non-residential retreat I just taught, I said, here's the opportunity. Many of the old Ancient students don't come to non-residentials. It's a waste of time. Anything two weeks or less, yeah, it's not enough. Won't calm, quiet the hindrances. What do you want to quiet the hindrances for? Ask yourselves that. There's the rub. There's the view. There's the alignment. There's The place that we can be alive, and if we are in alignment with right view, that is where we become alive. It's not seen as a defeat. It's only seen as a defeat when we're within wrong view. When it's me and oh my God, this is oh my the personal, the personal. It's like oh God, this is all about me. It's not all about you. It's all about the rub. It's all about the rub. And we want to get so sensitive that the rub, uh, rub, what's the rub? What is that? What's going on? Because that's where our heart delights. That's where we come alive. That's where our interest is. And therefore, that's where we receive to a greater and greater extent life itself. And our mindfulness is working in alignment with our life when we are very, very sensitive to love, to rub, to the rub. As in fact... If we want to know where we are in this practice, one indication is the sensitivity of the mind to the rub. The willingness to honestly face that, and to look at it, and to question it, and to investigate it. Now see, that's a very different kind of mindfulness than the applied mechanical mindfulness that I have to do because the literature says to be mindful and I saw monks monks of 20 or 30 years who were stagnant or appeared to be stagnant because their mindfulness was mechanical the spirit wasn't there the juice wasn't there And therefore the alignment... Because we are servants to the view. Everything we do, every act we do, are servants to the view. The view being the unknown. Because ultimately all things merge in the unknown. And so the view, right view is not establishing a new view It's the negation of the view we're in. Until that view holds no salt whatsoever. Does not sway my heart one bit. And I become servant to that. Call it the Buddha. Call it whatever we like. But it is from that that mindfulness then becomes an alignment and everything is understood as the integration of body, mind, and speech, livelihood, intention, thought, all of it in a line with a single rope, beautifully and intricately entwined. This isn't a piecemeal project. This is a project of the heart. And mindfulness is the method, the tool we use to sensitively, with care and attention, with receptiveness, with love, with affection, to look at our lives, to come into that view with respect for the fear that I have, for not always am I up to looking at it. So sometimes I back away, and that's okay. Sometimes I'm not up to it. just no, I can't do anymore. And that's okay. But we always know what we're doing, even when we back away. So even the backing away, even the, the retreating, is done consciously. And therefore the precepts spring forth from that consciousness. We swap the mosquito, and we go. What? What? A, what just happened there? We lie, and we. Say, what, what was I? What was I trying to protect? And we listen with that same sensitivity. Here's a what I think is a very beautiful statement of mindfulness in action. When we honestly ask ourselves which persons in our lives mean the most to us, we often find it is those who, instead of giving much advice, solution or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a gentle and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is the friend who cares. To be able to move in there within oneself allows us to also move within alignment in our actions to other people, with other people as well, to be able to receive another person's pain, to be able to touch and listen to someone else's problem—that too is part of mindfulness. That too is part of right action. That too gets us off the cushion, so that we speak our mindfulness in action. And how is it said that you know the difference between night and day? An old rabbi once asked his pupils how they could tell when the night had ended and the day had begun. Could it be, asked one of the students, when you see an animal in the distance and tell whether it's a sheep or a dog? No, answered the rabbi. Another asked, is it when you look at a tree in the distance and tell whether there's a fig tree or a peach tree? No, answered the rabbi. Then when is it, the pupil demanded. is when you can look at the face of any man or woman and see that as your sister or brother. Because if you cannot see this, it is still night. When we can't see the commonality of our human condition, we know we're within wrong view. We know the night has set in. When we get lost in the prejudice and opinions, when we get lost in our judgments, that night is an indication of wrong view. to bring forth the energy, the effort to see that commonality, that alignment with our own view, with the wise view of connectedness, of healing. That's all this is about. And so, in effect doing, I diminish who I am merely by listening, and receiving life
1: Thank you for listening